1 Samuel 1, starting in verse 19. It says, The next morning Elkanah and, his, and Hannah got up early to bow and worship before the Lord. Afterward, they returned home to Ramah. Then Elkanah was intimate with his wife Hannah, and the Lord remembered her. After some time, Hannah conceived and gave birth to a son. She named him Samuel because she said, I requested him from the Lord. When Elkanah and his household went up to make the annual sacrifice and his vow offering to the Lord, Hannah did not go and explained to her husband, After the child is weaned, I'll take him to appear in the Lord's presence and to stay there permanently. Her husband Elkanah replied, Do what you think is best and stay here until you've weaned him. May the Lord confirm your word. So Hannah stayed there and nursed her son until she weaned him. When she had weaned him, she took him with her to Shiloh, as well as a three-year-old bull, half a bushel of flour, and a jar of wine. Though the boy was still young, she took him to the Lord's house in Shiloh. Then they slaughtered the bull and brought the boy to Eli. Please, my Lord, she said, as sure as you live, my Lord, I am the woman who stood here beside you praying to the Lord. I prayed for this boy, and since the Lord gave me what I asked, asked him for, I now give the boy to the Lord. For as long as he lives, he is given to the Lord. Then he bowed in worship to the Lord there. Let me pray over these verses. Lord, again, I praise you for our children. I thank you for these two that were dedicated today. But I pray for each family that's here, whether there's children at home or not, whether there's children in, at all or not. Lord, I pray for our families. And I pray that our children would grow up to be an amazing force, a church that would, that would shake the foundations of of this world and and that your kingdom would be ushered in through them, Lord. I ask, just ask that you would work a powerful work, and we ask this in Jesus' name, Amen, Amen. So we had our our parent child dedication today, and I wanted to talk about parenting, and and so this is. Um, important, whether, again, you have children at home or not. I think it's an important uh, discussion to have. And while we had mothers up here, fathers as well have an incredible importance. I want to talk about fathers for just a little bit, because fathers have an incredible influence over their children's lives, more so than, than I think we realize In fact, I would say, men, that your influence and leadership in the spiritual issues of your children's lives are foundational to the, to the spiritual health of your children. I think they cannot be understated. And I don't want to put too fine a point on it, but men, your children look to you for their spiritual direction. That's the way it is. 
There was a study done in 2000 in Switzerland regarding parents, their church attendance, and the impact on their children. And I don't believe the results are all that much different here. I'm going to throw some slides up. Well, the ladies are going to throw some slides up. And, and there's a lot of numbers on them, but, bear, but follow me with this. And so here's what they found. First of all, if the father and mother both attended church regularly on a regular basis, that means they were here more than they were not then it means that 33% of their kids, they became regular attenders in church as well. 41% became irregular attenders. They came sometimes, sometimes they didn't. 25% of those became non-practicing. And so one out of four of those children, they did not, they did not attend church, but the rest were somehow in church at some time. The next slide shows that if the mother was a regular attender, but the father was irregularly attending. Look at this. 3% of the children became regular attenders. The father just stopped going once in a while. He went when he felt like it, you know, once every six weeks, whether he needed to or not. He just went. Um, and, and it's saying 3% of the children said church isn't important because it wasn't important to my dad. 59% became irregular attenders, and 38% became non-practicing. The next slide shows this, that if a father was non-practicing and the mother was a regular attending, only 2% of the kids, 1 out of 50 kids, were going to church on a regular basis. 30% became irregular, and 61% became non-practicing. And so the father's influence is incredible. In fact, if you looked at this, if a father was irregular, if the father attended regularly, is that the right? Is that what I gave you? And then the and the mother was non-practicing. Then 25%, no let's go back to that one. 25% were regular attenders and 37 became irregular attenders. I'm just saying the when the father attended regularly, the children started going as well. And the last slide says, if the father is a regular attender and the mother was non-practicing, she didn't go at all, still 44% of the, of the children became regular attenders because they saw their dad. Guys, your influence in the children's life is powerful. Now, we don't live in a world where that happens all the time. We live in a world where families are broken and things aren't working the way maybe they should. And so, first of all, ladies, if your husbands are not there or if they are not believers or they are not the spiritual leader they should be, don't give hope because our God is the father to the fatherless, right? And he cares for those, who, those ladies who have no husbands. He cares for them. And God's influence is much more powerful than any of us. And so don't give up hope and say, well, I don't have a father in my kid's life. That's why as a church, it's incredibly important we work together to help these children. Because some don't have fathers, or their fathers are not the men they need to be. But the church is a body, and we can come together and help them. And that influence is just incredible. I have had many discussions with men who said, I'm a believer today because a man in the church invested in me. 
or a lady in the church invested in me. I can remember, again, I just mentioned a couple weeks ago, my Sunday school teacher with her auto harp singing songs in Sunday school. I don't know what was said. I don't know what we sang, but I remember Alta Johnson and that Jesus loves me. And I think it's probably a critical part of my spiritual life that a woman in the church invested in me. As well as other men, but I'm just saying, that's why we're in a church. So as parents, as fathers, as mothers, we have a responsibility. We have a mandate from God to raise our kids to be Christians. Not to let them choose their own path because we're open-minded, but say, you must be a God worshiper. You can't force them on it, but to let them know this leads you into, into salvation. Knowing that there is a God and that Jesus Christ saved you, that is reality. People say, no, that's not. That's a fantasy. It is not. The reality is there is a God, and he sent his son to save us so that we could be restored to him And anyone telling you different is dealing in fantasy. They don't understand the world as it's made. And as parents, we need to guide our kids to understand that. So let's look at this Old Testament example to see how we can do that. Hannah didn't have any children, and she desperately wanted them. Her husband loved her. He wanted to make her happy, but he's like, I can only do so much. I I can't make this happen. And so she went to pray for a child, and she prayed, and she was praying so earnestly, her lips were moving, and the priest thought she was drunk. And he says, get out of here, woman. Why are you here drunk? And she says, I'm not drunk. I'm praying desperately for a kid. And we're going to read those verses in a minute. And God let this family have a child, and this child directed a course of a nation because it was raised to be a godly child. How did this happen? Let's see what we can learn from here. And so first of all, we need to remember that God is the one who gives us our children. God is the one who gives us our children. Look in verse 19 and 20. Well, actually, we're going to go back a little bit further than that. But we can look at at Hannah for an example And remember that our children are not here simply because of human activity. That it is directed by God and it's through the will and the power of God that we have children. So first of all, we see Hannah here. First, she prayed for her child. And in verse 13 through 18, It says, here's, here's what the verses say. Hannah was praying silently, and though her lips were moving, her voice could not be heard. And Eli thought she was drunk and scolded her. How long are you going to be drunk? Get rid of your wine. And listen to this. She said, no, my Lord. I'm a woman with a broken heart. I haven't had any wine or beer. I've been pouring my heart out before the Lord. Don't think of me as a wicked woman. I've been praying from the depth of my anguish and resentment. Moms, have you ever been there? Where you just pour your heart out to God over your kids? Worried for their their safety? Worried about their spiritual life? Worried about them just because 
And she's praying out of the anguish and resentment. And Eli responded, go in peace and may the God of Israel grant the petition you've requested from him. May your servant find favor with you. And she replied, uh, may, the, may, the, may your servant find favor with you, she replied. Then Hannah went on her way, and she ate and no longer looked despondent. She understood that God was going to work. She prayed for her child. She was mocked because she didn't have a child. She started praying. She was accused of being drunk, but she trusted in God for the prayer. And again, look at verse 11, even before where we were at. This is her prayer. Making a vow, she pleaded. This is what she said, Lord of hosts. That is essentially, um, again, I, I say this many times, but God of all the angel armies, that's what he's saying, all of the heavenly hosts, the, the armies of heaven, the one in control of that. If you will take notice of your servant's affliction, remember and not forget me and give your servant a son. I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life and his hair will never be cut. She made a commitment to give her son to the Lord. And the idea of the razor not coming to the head is a little weird, but it means he's going to be a Nazarite, which means he was going to be a person who from the very beginning of his life was going to be dedicated by his mom and lead him into what it means to be holy. Her prayer was not to have a good kid. That's too low of a bar. We shouldn't be praying, Lord, keep my kid out of jail. That is not the bar we're setting. We want to pray for kids to reflect the holiness of God, that they come to know Christ, and Christ leads them on a holy path so that when people see them, they will reflect God's glory. She says, I'm going to pray for him and dedicate him and let him know holiness. She prayed for her child to be holy. And then she prayed, and once she prayed, the Lord gave her a child. Verse 19, it says, um, he was intimate with his wife and the Lord remembered her. It means that he did what she asked for. She prayed and she said, Lord, give me a son. He remembered and he answered her prayer in a very powerful way that she came to be pregnant. So God entrusted this faithful couple with a new life and this new life would become a boy who would transform the nation. And we're going to discuss that in a minute, but my point is God gave this family a child. She prayed, and God gave it, and then she made a permanent reminder that this baby was God's work. She made a permanent reminder that this child was God's work. Look in verse 20. After some time, Hannah conceived and gave birth to a son. She named him Samuel because she said, I requested him from the Lord. She named him Samuel, which literally means asked of God. So when she was feeding him, she would say, you know, there, did you get enough Samuel? And she'd remember, I, I asked God for this child. When the baby was crying and crying and crying and just would not stop, and she's like, Samuel, what's wrong? She'd have to remember, by saying his name, it would be a, remember, a remembrance that, oh, God gave me this child. And when she... she uh, um, 
consoled him or what, you know, taking his first steps and saying, good job, Samuel. She was saying, I asked God for this son and look at him growing. God has given me such a good gift. She made a permanent reminder that this child was what she asked God for and God gave it to her. And we need to remember, however we need to remember, parents, that God has given us our children. They, they're not just simply by the human act of, of conception. It is, it is a gift from God. Our children are a gift from God. He made their DNA. He designed them to have you know, their hair color, their eye color. Some of their temperament is due to their, their code that God has, has written into them, how they're going to grow, how tall they're going to be. Who, so much of this is, is designed in their DNA, and then God directs their path and makes them who they are. He has, he, so he makes all this, and then he says to us here, would you be the one to raise this child for me? And it gives us that responsibility. We need to remind her that this baby was God's work. And so that means we're praying for the child. And again, praying for him to, to make a commitment, not just to be a good kid, but to be a holy child. And then we need to remember that commitment. That's why I gave the moms a, a certificate. So that sometime they're going through these precious things that we save for our children and say, you know what? I remember that I made a commitment to raise this child to be a believer. So we need to remember God's given us our children. We need to also remember that we are responsible. Parents, listen, we are responsible to teach our children to be Christ worshipers. It is our responsibility to teach our children to be Christ worshipers. In verse 21 and 23, When Elkanah and all his household went up to make the annual sacrifice and his vow offering to the Lord, Hannah did not go and explained to her husband, After the child's weaned, I'll take him to appear in the Lord's presence and stay there permanently. Her husband Elkanah replied, do what you think is best and stay here until you've weaned. May the Lord confirm your word. So Hannah stayed there and nursed her son until she weaned him. Now these verses are a little strange, but let me just see if I can clear them up a bit. She's taking responsibility for the spiritual growth of her child. From day one, she is going to raise this child to be a God follower. And then when it's time for someone else to come into the picture to help her raise this child, she's just not going to throw the child to the wolves and, and, and somebody who doesn't agree with what she fundamentally believes in. She's going to pair this child up with someone who believes the exact same thing she does so that her beliefs will also be transferred to this child. And so I want to take, she took responsibility for the formation of her children, her child's growth from day one. 
And the father was involved as well here too. He said, may the Lord confirm your word. And what he's saying is, I want to see this child grow too. And I want to everything that we vowed before the Lord to happen. And so that, that is, I want him to be accepted by the Lord, employed in God's service, whatever that may be. May the Lord confirm your word that you talked to God about. So the father was involved as well. And my point is, the father and mother at day one, the minute that child was born, they began teaching their child about spiritual things. Because here's the deal, whether you know it or not, you are teaching your child spiritual truths every day. You are teaching them how you relate to God, what you believe about your faith, and and all that. And so in that vein, let me say a couple of things. Number one, first parents, you can't just be responsible. You're not just responsible. You have to be vigilant about your children's spiritual life. You have to be vigilant because the world is vigilant to pull them away. Satan is, is kind of out there running the world and he is throwing influences and every day they are worse and worse that are more tempting to pull our children away from the faith. Every day it's harder. Uh, I, I've talked with many that were my age and thinking, man, I, could, I would hate to be a child, a, a high school student in in this day and time. It was hard when I went through it. Could you imagine with all the technology and stuff, and many of you might have had the same thought that it's difficult. But the spiritual growth of our children, parents, it's it's your responsibility. One hour of Sunday school a week isn't going to shape your child into a Christ worshiper. Let me show you some statistics. I know we have Christian teachers in school, and I praise God for those teachers in school. But not every, Christ, every teacher is a Christian committed to the same way you're raising your child. And look at these statistics. If you put your kid in school, they normally go seven hours a day. That is, that is the normal school day. They normally go five days a week. They're going to do that for 36 weeks, so that's about nine months. And if they go to full-day kindergarten and go through 12th grade, that is 13 years. That means 16,380 hours your children are being taught by someone. And it's not just math and reading and, and um, geography. Make no mistake, there is a philosophy that is being taught. Now, if you put, let's look at the next slide. If you put the kid in everything that this church does, everything we do for kids, you've got an hour of Sunday school a week. You do that for a full year, that's 52 hours. We have children's church, that's a half hour, unless the pastor goes long. Uh, but it's about a half hour, and that's 26 hours in a, in a year. We're doing a WANA, that's, that's two hours a week, that's, that's 72 hours in a year, and that means um, 150 hours per year. If they do that from kindergarten through 13, or for, from 12th grade, kindergarten through 12th grade, that is 1,950 hours. If you are depending upon the church to make your, your child a church alone, to make your child a Christ worshiper, we have a math problem. I don't know what else to say. 
The the school is teaching them at 16,380 hours uh, over the course of their life, and the church is doing 1,950 hours. And that means, parents, you have to be vigilant. You have to be vigilant in, in teaching their kids. So when you come home from school, you're asking them, what did you learn today? And if they say something that is not biblically correct, there must be a correction on that. It may be a rethinking about their education that you want someone paired with you who better lines up with what you believe. It may be a host of other things, but you have to be vigilant knowing that the world is trying to draw your kid away from Christ and you are trying to draw your kid to Christ And there is a fight in your child's heart for that. And the math doesn't add up if you're just only depending upon the church. We're going to help as much as we can, but it's on the parent. I want to show you one other statistic because I think it's interesting. The disciples walked with Jesus for three years. If they slept nine hours a day, which is probably generous, but figure nine hours a day for sleeping, they spent 15 hours a day with Jesus. They got up. They ate breakfast with him. They talked with him. They walked with him. They sang with him. They had lunch with him. They had troubles with him. They had fights among themselves that Jesus kind of fixed. But they walked with Jesus every day, 365 days a year for three years. That's 16,425 hours. That's just a little bit different. And that's only over the course of three years. I'm saying walking with Jesus makes a difference. And that's the parents teaching the children how to walk with Christ. You have to be vigilant about your child's spiritual growth. And the second thing I need to tell the parents is that disciplining your child is about your child's spiritual uh, welfare. The discipline of children is directly tied to their spiritual welfare. And I'm going to have parents maybe scoff at me at this and maybe think it's hard, uh, uh, maybe I'm too hard on this. I'm not talking about beating your kids. I'm not talking about uh, demeaning your kids. I'm talking about discipline because the core of being a disciple of Jesus is the word discipline. It goes hand in hand. Because listen, in the grand scheme of things, if you tell your child, go make your bed, and the child says no, there's really no big grand scheme issue there, except that you have just taught your child how they're going to relate to authority, and more specifically, the authority that matters, the the ultimate authority, God in heaven. Because at some point in that child's life, God's going to come into that child's life and ask him something or tell him, I want you to go in this direction. And if the parent has taught that it's okay to tell, to tell my, my parent no and rebel against them, it's easier to rebel against God. Again, I'm not talking about being authoritarian. I'm not talking about beating your kid, but I'm simply telling you that God places children in our lives and teaches them how to relate to authority because he is the ultimate father, and they're going to learn how to relate to their parents. I mean, how to relate to their ultimate parent through us. My poor child, she was taught no, slow obedience is no obedience. Isn't that terrible? 
that's just terrible. But it's, it's, man, it's right on. I didn't count down. I didn't tell her, I want you to clean your room. And she said no. And I didn't say three, two, one, and then she's in trouble. The minute she said no, she's in trouble. That poor kid. She didn't come out too warped. She's, she's pretty good. She's doing all right. And she's doing all right spiritually. She has her own relationship with the Lord and married a man who does as well. I'm not the, Rhonda and I are not the ultimate parents, but we took this part very seriously, and I want to just incur, um, and encourage young parents to remember the direct connection between the discipline of your child and their spiritual welfare. Listen, as a child grows up and becomes an adult, you could do the best thing you could as a parent and be a godly parent, and the kid's going to go off on his own way, possibly. That is not a reflection on you. When, when a child is an adult and decides to rebel on their own, that is, that is on them. So this is not a condemnation about that. It's simply saying, remember the connection there. God gives us our children. We are to be responsible to teach our children to be God worshipers. And the last thing I want to talk about, and it's the hardest part, I think, of this sermon, is that we need to give our children back to God. We need to give our children back to God. Look what it says in verse 24 and 28. When she had weaned him, she took with him, she took, sorry, I'm worn out. When she had weaned him, she took him with her to Shiloh, as well as a three-year-old bull, half a bushel of flour, and a jar of wine. Though the boy was still young, she took him to the Lord's house at Shiloh, and they slaughtered the bull and brought the boy to Eli. Please, my Lord, as sure as you live, my Lord, I am the woman who stood there beside you praying for the Lord. Listen to this. I prayed for this boy, and since the Lord gave me what I asked for him, I now give the boy to the Lord. That should be underlined in our scripture. For as long as he lives, he is given in the Lord, and then he bowed in worship to the Lord there. This is the hardest part of this biblical family's example. It's the hardest part of being a Christ-following parent. God gave them this child. They developed this child to be a God worshiper. And then they let that child go. And they said, we're going to trust that God is going to be a much better parent to this child than I'll ever be. And that's hard for us to get our minds around. Now, they did it when he was very young. He was weaned. That might have been two or three years old. And I'm not suggesting anybody give their kid to the church at three. Please don't. I wouldn't know. Don't, don't do that. We're not talking about that. But we are saying at a young age, maybe immediately you say, God, this is your child. And whatever you want to do with this child is up to you. Another principle guiding Rhonda's and, and my parenting comes from Rhonda's grandma and and essentially says that if it comes to the point where God's calling our child one way, we would rather her be in God's will, walking with him, and never see her again than see her every day not in God's will. That is letting the child go and saying, God, do whatever you want to. It's placing their spiritual life as a priority The idea here 
is this woman who and she gave this child that was weaned to the Lord. It's the idea that the child has been raised enough to understand that they need to receive Christ to be saved. And once that child receives Christ, that parent says, God, do whatever you want to with this child. And if that means this child's going to be a uh, uh, a missionary, if he's going to be a mechanic that wins people to Christ through, through mechanic work, if he's going to be a soldier, if he's going to be a farmer, if he's going to be a theologian, if he's going to be a professor at college, if he's going to be a shop owner, whatever it is, I give him or her to you so that they can build your kingdom through whatever it is. Just real quick, look over Dan, or Samuel's, Samuel's life. 1 Samuel chapter 3, that he's there in the, in the, in the temple or, or in the house, wherever he's at, and, and God gives him a prophetic message as a young boy that tells him that the priest is not doing his job and that Samuel needs to, to tell him that. Here's this young boy telling the priest of how bad of a job the priest is doing. Samuel held a special place in in history. Before the kings, there were judges, the book of Judges, and God raised up the guy that God wanted and sometimes the woman that God wanted to use. And so he raised up people like Gideon and people like Deborah, and it was the people that God chose to lead his people, and then when their job was done, they would go away, and then he'd raise up the next one. But the people said, we don't want that anymore. We want the people we want in office, and so they began to choose a king, and God gave them a king. And so from that point, God said, I'm still going to have a voice among my people. And so instead of the king, he raised up prophets who were his people to speak his word to the people. Samuel was the last judge of Israel and the first prophet of Israel. And he begins this as a young boy in chapter 3. We go on in chapter 10, and Samuel is the one who first anoints, he anoints the first king of Israel who is Saul. And then in chapter 15, he stands before the king and rebukes the king and says, you will no longer be king because you disobeyed the Lord. This is the same boy, and now, now a man. And Samuel 16, Samuel goes to Jesse's household and looks through all the boys of Jesse's household. None can be found to be king. And he says, is there any other? They said, well, there's the youngest sheep boy, but he's kind of stinky because he's still out in the field. And, And Samuel says, get him. And they bring David and he anoints David as king. And he becomes the not only king, but the one that God promises the Messiah is going to sit on his throne forevermore. This is the same Samuel. He is very influential. He is so powerful and influential in this people's life that in 1 Samuel 25, Samuel has died and Saul is still seeking his wisdom and he goes to a median to try to contact Samuel after he had died to still get wisdom from him and is condemned for doing so because that's not something God followers do. He is a very powerful influence and the chil- our children, no matter how old they are, whether they're at home or not, they have the potential to turn this world on its head if they're sold out for Christ. And parents, we can lead them in that. 
They could be missionaries or spirit-filled pastors. They could be history-changing archaeologists. Like I said, they could be doctors, politicians, mechanics, farmers. They could be whatever it is because whatever God's called them to, if they are following Christ, they can share the gospel where they're at and change the world. Two families in the state of New York were examined very carefully from the 1800s. One was a family by the name of, uh, the father was Max Jukes, and the other was Jonathan Edwards. And what they found from from this, this discovery is pretty remarkable. Max Jukes was an unbelieving man. He married a woman of, of, who, of the same character. She lacked no, really, no real character. And among their known descendants, there was 1,200 that were studied. 310 became professional vagrants. 440 were physically wrecked, physically wrecked their lives by a moral corrupt lifestyle. 130 were sent to prison for 13 years each, or average of 13 years each. Seven of them committed murder. Over 100 became alcoholics. 60 became professional thieves. 190 became professional prostitutes. 20 who learned a trade. uh, There was 20 that learned a trade, and 10 of them learned that trade in prison. The family apparently as a whole cost the state um, of New York about $1.5 million, and as far as they can tell, they made no significant contribution to society. And then they looked at the family of Jonathan Edwards, who was a powerful preacher in, uh, in that time. And I'm not sure if that's the same Jonathan Edwards, but he was a godly man, and he married a woman of like character, and their family was studied. And instead of 300 becoming professional vagrants, 300 became clergymen, missionaries, theological professors. Over 100 became college professors. Over 100 became attorneys, and 30 of those became judges. 60 of them became physicians. Over 60 became authors of good classic books. 14 became presidents of universities. Three became congressmen, and one became the vice president of the United States, Aaron Burr. See, being a parent means more than having the ability to produce a child. And being a Christian parent means more than dragging your kid to church once a week. Being a Christian parent means you develop the relationship with the, with the Almighty God. And not only for your own benefit, but for the benefit of your child. And then that will impact your children. And that should impact their children and impact generations to come. And it doesn't matter what your life was beforehand. It doesn't matter what legacy was handed to you. God can change that and make your legacy starting today be one that honors God and changes the trajectory of your life. We need to remember that God gave us our children and that we're responsible to teach our children to be God worshipers. And we need to give our children back to God for Him to do what He wants. Do you remember Parents, that your child is God's possession? Have you given that child back to him? And say, God, whatever you want. Have you intentionally taught your child to be a God worshiper?
Even if the child's out of home, it's still not too late. You can still talk to them about it. I'm going to have you bow your heads and think through this. If you're a parent today, maybe there's a commitment you need to make and say, you know what, I need to begin to be the kind of parent God wants me to be. Maybe you have been and you're just still struggling of giving your child to him, saying, God, do with him whatever it is that would bring the most glory to you. Maybe there's another decision God's laid on your heart through what was spoken today, and you say, I need to take care of this today. Maybe you're someone who's never had a relationship with Christ, and you say, you know what, I want the best, not only for me, but for my child. And if it means that I surrender my life to Christ so that my child can come and her, his or her life is changed, maybe you need to make that decision today to come to know Christ so that you can be forgiven of sins be brought into God's family and change the trajectory of of your legacy. God, I come to you and ask that you would work in our hearts. Lord, I pray that you would do a powerful work. Lord, we thank you for our children. I thank you for the gift you have given us. Like the scripture said, we are blessed when our quiver is full of them. And so I pray, Lord, that you would bless this church with many families with children. But Lord, I pray for those parents that they would take it upon themselves to raise their kids to be Christ worshipers. That they would commit their entire life to you. And that their kids would see that example and be changed as well. Thank you for these parents. Give them the strength they need. Lift up these mothers who, who are struggling on their own to do it, and I pray that you would give them a special blessing, that you'd be the father to their children and the husbands that they need, that you would care for them in a very special way. I pray you'd give them the strength they need to do what you've called them to do. Lord, as a church, I pray that you would convict us as well to step up where we need to and help these families work in our lives, and thank you for them. In Jesus' name, amen.